Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Linda Carson is an award-winning journalist who has been telling America's stories in nine different states and multiple stations for nearly 60 years. Originally from Atlanta, Georgia, she is a graduate of Mercer University. She began her broadcast career working as a promotion writer and went on the air as a weathercaster before becoming a reporter and an anchor. Linda recently celebrated her 26th anniversary at ABC7 out of Sarasota, Bradenton, Florida, where she is the co-host of Suncoast View. Over her nearly six decades of involvement in television, she has covered natural and human tragedies and covered events that focused a nation. She covered a young black minister and his wife during the civil rights era, and she reached out to and importantly developed a rapport with the death row serial killer, Danny Rowling, interviewing him and bearing witness and reporting on his execution. Particularly timely as we tape our show today, she was in the classroom with President George Bush at Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida on September 11, 2001, when he received the news of the terrorist strikes. She met her husband, Bud Carson, who was the head coach at Georgia Tech, on an interview. The romance and marriage involved moves and changes for Linda and her career over time as Bud moved from Pittsburgh to the Rams to so many other places. Linda has developed an on-air personality in Baltimore, Kansas City, Hartford, Connecticut, Cleveland, Philadelphia, and now here in the Sarasota, Bradenton, Florida area. Bud died in 2005. Together, he and Linda have a family legacy of four children, six grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. Linda is also a strong community supporter, having served on the boards of directors for the Circus Arts Conservatory, the American Cancer Society, and the Alzheimer's Association. She has a passion for sailing and for many years sailed a small pram with the Luffing Lassies at the Sarasota Sailing Squadron. She's also a great lover of books and currently hosts a twice-weekly on-air book club from Suncoast News and Facebook followers. Linda, it is an extreme pleasure to have you on The Storytellers today. Oh, thank you for asking me, Grace. This is great fun. I've never done a podcast before. Well, we're happy to have you, and I want to start with the premise of our show, Being Storytellers. How is it that you knew at your start of your career at a time when America was not listening to women tell our stories. How did you know to do that? You know, when I was in elementary school, I loved Brenda Starr, who was a comic character in what we called the funny papers at that time. So every week I followed her and her adventures. She was smart. She was beautiful. And she did very exciting things. And in in the comics, nobody discriminated against her. She was just another reporter. However, she was the best. So that's always what I wanted to be from like fifth grade on. That's amazing. I wanted to be Jessica Savage 
um, the wonderful reporter. My mom told me I couldn't be home for dinner and do that. So I loved, I never thought of Brenda Starr. I remember her vividly. She was beautiful red hair. And I remember Jessica Savage. One of her famous quotes was to move up, you got to move out, which meant you had to change TV stations, which quite often is true. So you got your inspiration there. And did you just go for it? Did you have- oh, yes, I it never. I, of course, there were no women on the air. That only meant they they needed one. Uh, so I walked into the station and put in applications. I went to the three Atlanta stations like every three months and put in applications. When I finally got a job there, I went back and checked. Nobody had ever looked at those applications. In those days, you just had to audition, open audition. You had one chance, go on the air and do it. And then they chose from like 200 people. I think of you as going from miniskirt to being media maven. You've had this amazing career. How has the world of women's television changed in your eyes? Well, it, it, the miniskirts are gone, hopefully, although I see them coming back in a lot of areas in sports coverage and things like that. But, you know, the first job I auditioned for on the air, and I wanted it so bad. I was the writer for the promotion department at WAGA in Atlanta, and they told me we're going to have a woman do a sportscast. Wow, I want to do that. I want to do that. Uh, So they said, all you have to do is sit on the edge of the desk, wear tight short shorts, a very tight t-shirt that says, Coach Friday, and predict football scores. Now, the funny thing about it is going to be you get them right and you challenge the sportscaster who gets them wrong. That's going to be the hilarious part of it. I wanted that job so bad. So I call my best. I auditioned and they said, hey, you've got it. You've got it. You're the last one. We're closing down in an hour. You've got this part. I called my best friend, Jane Chastain, and told her, I just got the greatest job. They're going to close it in an hour. So they're sure I've got it. The next day, I called and they said, oh, Jane Chastain came in after you yesterday, and she got the job. (laughs) Ah, but karma. Uh, About six months later, after Jane had been on the air as Coach Friday, they had auditions for a weathercaster at Channel 11. There were over 250 women auditioning. Jane and I were the final two, but they said, no, we don't want Jane Chastain. She's got that sexy image over at that other station. So I got the first really big job because I didn't get the one with the sexy image before that. You've had so many career highlights. And this weekend, I know in my family, was particularly sobering with the history of 9-11. And I thought about you in in preparation for our time together today. What was it like to be with the president at that time? Well, we had to be there at five o'clock in the morning in the second grade classroom uh, because the uh, Secret Service had to do a security check. So we had to leave our phones outside. And the only people in the classroom with the president was Ann Compton. She was the White House correspondent for ABC, me and the school board uh, photographer. And of course, Devin Marshall was my photographer at ABC7. Uh, so the president came in, he listened to the children read, Andrew Card came and whispered in his ear after a few minutes. I thought he was just saying, time to move on. The president paused, he stood up, thanked the kids, 
and started to leave. And Ann Compton, who cheated, did not leave her phone outside. She said, Mr. President, do you know a second plane just hit the World Trade Center? And he said, we're going to deal with that right now. Uh, and he walked, he was supposed to walk one way and we were supposed to go the other way. Well, everybody went with him, so so did we. And we were running right behind him. Uh, we were listening to anything they were saying. It was strange because a lot of people had been chosen to shake the president's hand as he went through the breezeway into the media center. And they didn't know any of this either. So they would start to applaud, they'd stick their hand out, and then they could see on his face that there was something wrong. And when we went in the media center, it was the same way. I still, you know, when she said a, a plane hit the World Trade Center, a small plane had hit a high rise in Tampa just a few weeks before. So I didn't realize it wasn't something like that. When we got into that room and saw the TV and saw what was happening, there were just a few moments of stunned silence. And then the president, he could go on national television because all of the television stations, all the national media was there. Uh, but, you know, when he talked, I have never felt that kind of strength, that kind of love for the people around me. We just joined arms. I don't know who was standing close to me. We just joined arms. It was like, you're not coming through here. You're not coming through us. And it was a feeling of, of strength, of, of pride in, in this country, of love for the other people in this country. I have never felt such power emotion, powerful emotions, but fear was not one of them. Oh, it gives me chills to listen to you being right there at that that moment with the most powerful person in the United States. And as we watched and rewatched the footage this over the weekend, just seeing his calm in mm -hmm. that moment was also remarkable. And that's not the first uh, step in history, though. When I was preparing for this, I mentioned in your bio that you followed a young black minister and his wife in Atlanta. Tell our listeners about that, because that's pretty special. That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and his wife, Coretta King. And this was like 1964. I was the first female reporter in Atlanta on the street. My photographer was the first black photographer on the street. Uh, and so there we were out together uh, covering Dr. King. And my news director said to me, well, you know, a woman shouldn't really be traveling with Dr. King. Now, of course, there were hundreds of people traveling with Dr. King, but you should travel with Mrs. King. So I would go everywhere Mrs. King did. I interviewed her after every big event. Uh, I was at her house just about a week and a half before he was killed. We were doing a story about what do you tell the kids when daddy's in jail? Because most of us say, you know, bad people go to jail and good people don't go to jail. Well, their father was in jail a lot. So I asked her, what do you tell the children when daddy goes to jail? And she said, that that's not, we don't even deal with that. She said, I have to think about what to tell them in case there's a tragedy someday, in case something really terrible happens. Um, so uh, about a week later, I was by then I was anchoring the 11 o'clock news. And in, in the old days, when there was a big news story, all the AP and UPS machines started to ring. So suddenly everything started to ring. And we looked and saw that Dr. King had been shot. Um, think we would not do that today. But then we called Mayor Ivan Allen 
first so he could go and tell Mrs. King. And we went right behind him. So first he went and we were right there when, when he told her uh, and when she got ready to leave. So I, I covered her and, and all of the people who came into town for the funeral. I listened, you know, I listened to him so many times speak. He would speak uh, at the Baptist church there. Uh, and I would sit in the audience and think, how long is this going to last? I could kick myself now. I wish I had, I was listening to one of the greatest speakers of all time and I should have paid more attention. Uh, but um, I got to know his father very well. Uh, his his dad was a Baptist preacher, and so was my dad, and they knew each other well. I've had his father say to me, when I got on an elevator, microphone in hand, and very dignified, we always, old Dr. King punched me and said, I'm going to call your dad if you don't put on some decent clothes, because <laughs> I had on a miniskirt. Um, but, um, and Dr., we, I asked him once, would you have chosen for your son to be just an ordinary person maybe giving sermons in your church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, or this terrible role that he was chosen for that killed him. And he said, there was no choice. Absolutely. I would have chosen him exactly for the way his fate took him. So they they were just true heroes, true heroes. We would walk in and sit around. They would eat at Pritchard's restaurant. He and, and the uh, men, because it was a group of men he was working with. And we would just sit there and listen to what they were saying and how they were talking. And they were not trying to hide anything. And they knew every time they went out, they were putting their lives in danger, but they went anyway. You have, I'm sure, countless stories, and I'm so happy to have you here on The Storytellers. One of the ones that intrigued me, and I'm sure intrigues many, is that you reached out to a serial killer to find out, if I understand the story correctly, how people could avoid being raped? Well, my daughter was going to law school at the University of Florida. So I got her this real nice apartment because, you know, there had been the murders there. There had been the five murders there. So I got her own apartment with all this great security. She moved out and moved into this apartment with like 20 people in and out, no keys. And so I, I told her, this is not safe. And she rolled her eyes at me. I got the sheriff of, De- of Sarasota County to tell her this is not safe. She rolled her eyes at him. So I wrote to Danny Rowling and I said, my daughter won't listen to me. She won't listen to the sheriff, but maybe she'll listen to you. And he answered me back and he said, I have refused interviews from all the national media, from the New York Times, but I am going to accept your request because if I can save one dear life in this world, I'll be happy to do it. Danny Rowling had two very different personalities. That, of course, was a lie, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but he had very different personalities. He was charming. He was funny. He was good looking. Of course, that's the way he lured people in. Uh, but the great lesson that I got from there is, you know, there's not this horrible, scary, bushy-haired stranger. This is good-looking, charming, nice gentleman, uh, So just be sure you know who you're dealing with. Those are three amazing stories. Are there others that really stick out over your years doing this? Oh, there were so many things. You know, I didn't come to Sarasota until I was 57. 
And when I came to Sarasota, I thought, okay, my career is over. A 57-year-old woman going into television. I was coming from um, Philadelphia, where I had I'd been with Fox 29. I did a football show on Saturdays. Uh, and uh, I was filling in for the weather when my husband resigned from the Eagles and came here. Uh, and I thought, okay, my career is over. But I have now been here 26 and a half years. And some of my best stories happened here. The Danny Rowling story happened here. That was, you know, I guess we all have questions late at night when you're going to bed and you're alone in the house. You think, what can I do to protect myself? A few things Danny said was, uh, he said, get one of those clap on, clap off things. Because if I start to break into your house and I make a noise and the lights go on, I'm going to run. And he said, get a dog. I don't care what size he is. But if a dog starts to bark, I'm out of there and on to the next house. He said, I say, easy is as easy gets. I go for the easiest target. Uh, and he said, we've heard this all before, but he said, if you're in a mall uh, and you see somebody coming towards you, throw your purse and throw your keys and run the other way. Uh, and don't ever get in that car with him. So I've learned, I learned so many lessons from him. Uh, but everybody I've met has had a story. So it's, it's just been one after the other of amazing discoveries. You know, I, I love that you shared it that way. My father, as I think you know, is an old television director. He, well, he was in radio and then he was in television. And he did Ed Murrow's Person to Person. And so in the beginning of the 50s, he met every single famous person that there was. But every now and then they would do a local interest, the, the guy who orders the cars for Liberace. And my father always loved those stories in a special way. Can you talk a bit about that, the difference between the big stories and those smaller stories, if you will? Well, sometimes they are the most exciting because we put ourselves in that place. We see that we could have walked in that path. I think one reason for looking at all of these stories, uh, did you read The Midnight Library? In that book, the, the girl goes in and she can choose a book that would have her life going in every direction it could have been. Suppose I'd married that first boyfriend. How would it have turned out? Suppose I had been a famous singer. How would that have turned out? So meeting these different people right here around us is saying, oh, could my life, got, could my life have gone in that direction? So you get to live these other lives that you didn't choose. You get to see what it was like in their life, and maybe a little bit experience what you would have experienced in those other lives. You do so much great volunteering. You mentioned the book, The Midnight Library. During COVID, you brought so many people great joy by starting this book club, which is where we met, although we've never met. <laughs> and is that part of your commitment to volunteering? How did that evolve? That happened in desperation. I spent an entire year here in my house, uh, away from everybody. I did not go. I was live every day from my computer, but I did not see other human beings. So I'd be on the air for an hour, and then I'd be alone. And I was reading. I was just reading all the time. And I would so when we just before we'd gone every day on Suncoast, you had to be telling them, "Oh, I read this great book," and this and this and this happened. So Joey. Uh, 
panic said, well, why don't you just do a book club and talk to people who are reading the same books? So that's how it started. And it, it is, it just gives you a feeling that you're tied together, that you're not alone, that you're sort of sitting in a circle and discussing the same subject with each other. Sarasota is such an amazing place to volunteer from the arts to hospice. You and I have both been hospice volunteers. <laughs> why is volunteering so much a hallmark of who you are? Well, it makes you feel good about who you are. You know, I go through my life enjoying my life, having a great time doing what I choose, and I've really been blessed. But And sometimes when we do news stories, at the end of the news story, my photographer and I would look at each other and say, we did something good today. But that did not happen often. But with volunteering, you can always look at yourself at the end of the day and think, I did something good today. One of my favorite volunteering things, and this was in uh, Cleveland before I came here, was Meals on Wheels. I would deliver the food. I had my group, and I would deliver the food to these people uh, every day at lunchtime. And when we moved from Cleveland to Philadelphia, I that was my saddest part. I'm leaving my ladies. I'm leaving my men behind. They're counting on me. What's going to happen to them? Uh, so I really felt like the end of each shift, I had done something good for somebody else. So it was a selfish thing in many ways because it just felt, made me feel good about being alive. I always say the same thing about volunteering. I've done the hospice, um, guardian ad litem work, which we have a large number of children in the Sarasota area who are in, in need of that. But I always felt in some ways it was some of my best work. And selfishly, I also knew it's because I felt good about myself yes. as well. Yes. So I, I was so glad that you shared that. In my novel, I have this one woman who is so broken. She has really lost her way. And she writes down all these life lessons that these older women teach her. And I found as I was researching you, I was writing down all of these things I had read that you had mentioned to be engaging, to be more interested in other people than yourself, to be kind, to understand that you're replaceable, but be prepared and to be driven. And this was one of my favorite, know who you are, not what other people say you are. Were you always this wise or is this part of decades in the work? Well, I, you know, I work, I'm 83, uh, and I work with Stephanie, who's the, the age of my daughter, and with uh, Kaylee and Carla, and they are both 23. And I, kept t I keep telling them, I know the answers to a lot of questions because I made mistakes. I learned these things by doing them the wrong way. And now looking back, you know, what I feel worst about is times that I was unkind to somebody. Uh, times I said those mean things that go round and round in your head. Uh, the times I didn't zip it up and the times I let those words out. Uh, and um, the times I feel best about, about myself are, are the times that I, I do go out of my way to be kind. So I learned that by experiencing what makes me feel best. I always say to people, be kinder than you need to be. Yes. And, uh, you are such a great role model in that work and the kindness that you showed to be on the show today. I like to wind up the show usually with something quirky or different about yourself that people might not know about you. Mm. Oh, I am a really great fire baton twirler. <laughs> 
that has never served me as well as I thought it would, uh, but I still have my fire baton and I'm still waiting. But when I was learning at 16, 17 to twirl a fire baton, I thought I've got my life set out now. Well, you have certainly set the world on fire um, in so, so many ways, Linda. It is a gift. I'd love to have you back on on the show with other stories. And thank you for being a great storyteller for so many years. And thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because... When our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.